David is the psalmist of eternity. What a destiny. What a power hath poetry when inspired by God. As for myself, when my spirit is excited or devotional or sad and seeks for an echo to its enthusiasm, its devotion, or its melancholy, I do not open to the academic poets, neither do I find within myself murmurings to express my emotion. I open the book of Psalms, and there I find words which seem to issue from the soul of the ages, and which penetrate even to the heart of all generations. So said one 19th century writer. And indeed the Psalms do have a quality to them that transcends the ages, transcends time, transcends culture. In the Psalms, believers have found expressions for their praise, for their dismay, for their indignation, for their grief, for their pleas for mercy, basically for their worship in any and all circumstances of life. And yet beyond this, we also find in the Psalms, in these poems, in these songs, our Lord Jesus Christ himself. It was he, of course, who taught the disciples, taught us that the Psalms are about him, that the Psalms point to him. The Psalms are often referred to as the songbook of Israel. You've maybe heard that phrase before. But the early Christians, and I mean the early Christians, the disciples themselves, the New Testament writers, they made it clear that these were not just songs of Israel, but this was also the songbook of the church. That the Psalms are not merely an Old Testament book, it is a Christian one as well. This is again precisely what it is that the Lord Jesus has taught us that we saw even just, I think it was just last week even in in Luke 24. And so we find uh, in the New Testament that the Psalms are quoted more than any other book in the New, in the, from the Old Testament. The New Testament authors appeal to it more than any other book uh, when they're preaching Christ. I read an, an anecdote recently about uh, an old man, an old pastor, who he was either just really old or he was on his deathbed, and he was talking to a, uh, a, a young pastor, a new pastor, and he said to him, I envy you. Because you have a lifetime ahead of you of teaching your people the Psalms. I'm certain that many of you have loved the Psalms deeply and have your favorites. If I asked you, if we went around the room, I'm sure many of you very quickly could uh, throw out your favorite. For some of you, it might even be your favorite book. It might be your go-to when it's time to read the Bible. You just naturally want to open to the Psalms and start reading For many, this is the case, and yet I must confess to you that for a long time, I simply did not understand, I did not get this love for the Psalms. Uh, For me, uh, I was perplexed by a lot of what I read there. I found it difficult. I had a hard time making application from the Psalms to my own life. And I often have found myself frustrated while reading the Psalms, not entirely sure what to make of them. Moreover... When it comes to the Christology of the the Psalms, how it is that they point to Christ and teach us of Christ, I have found this also bewildering at times, trying to grasp how this book teaches us of Christ, even where the New Testament explicitly tells us it speaks of Christ. I've still gone back to that Psalm and wondered how exactly uh, does this work. So I don't know where you're at today as you consider the Psalms, as you think of the Psalms, uh, but I trust as we begin to work our way through some of these, these psalms, you will come to appreciate them afresh or perhaps for the first time. Now, we're not going to be going through uh, every single one of the psalms, at least not uh, right away. That's relieving to some of you. I... But we are going to cover uh, in this series now a wide range of the psalms. Uh, from scattered throughout the Psalter, throughout all 150 of the Psalms. Uh, We're going to cover the wide range of these Psalms. Uh, Psalms of praise, Psalms of lament, uh, Psalms of 
uh, wisdom, psalms of penitence or repentance, and also psalms of imprecation. Those imprecatory psalms, everyone's favorites, the psalms of judgment. And along the way, as we uh, look at a number of these psalms, uh, we're also going to be seeking to discover uh, the different ways that these psalms do teach of Christ, the different ways they do uh, point to Him and, and speak of Him. And so this series we're, we're, we're starting today, uh, it's going to last at least until the spring. Um, it's possible that we might get carried away and go further. That's entirely possible. Uh, but at the very least, we are going to uh, weather these dark and cold days uh, of 2020 in the book of Psalms together. So how's that for bearing the lead? The real reason we're in the Psalms is so we can find expression of our lament of a Saskatchewan winter. I kid, of course. Or do I? We'll never know. And so today we are beginning, and we are going to start at the beginning of the Psalms. We are going to start in chapter 1. So I will invite you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 1. Uh, many believe that the Psalms are just kind of a, 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 co a collection that has no particular order to them. Just a, a bunch of these Psalms that are just kind of slapped together. Still many others, though, uh, think that there is a discernible order to the arrangement. And, uh, and I think the latter is true. I think there is an order to it um, that uh, is, is discernible. And we're going to talk about that a little bit as we go through uh, this series. But even so, I'm hesitant to make too much about the order and arrangement when it comes to, uh, to interpretation. Uh, but one of the places where I think it does help uh, where it does matter somewhat for our understanding, is right here at the beginning. Uh, Psalm chapter 1, it is widely agreed, even amongst those who don't really think there's much of an, you know, uh, an, uh, uh, a meaningful arrangement to the Psalms. Uh, even so, it's widely agreed that Psalm 1 is, is designed and placed here up front for a reason, that it serves as an introduction to the book, that it is the gateway into the rest of it, placed here, by whoever was the final editor of the Psalms, compiling all of these 150 Psalms together. Uh, possibly uh, Ezra, that's just kind of a, an educated guess, but uh, we don't know for sure who that was. Uh, but of course, Psalm 1 is, is placed here at the start, and it's followed closely, obviously, by Psalm 2, which clearly, uh, in Psalm 2, clearly presents the messianic hope that runs throughout the book. And we're going to look at that next week. So Psalm 1 uh, begins by presenting to us here, reminding us here, that there are two paths that can be traveled through this life. There's the way of the wicked, and then there's the way of the righteous. And the rest of the Psalms really then provide a voice, if you will, for those who are traveling the path of the blessed man, or the path of the, the righteous one, the believer's path. It provides a voice for us. It gives interaction with... Uh, you know, as, as believers interact with those who walk the other path, even the wicked. And the Psalms also go on to point us to the Messiah that would come to redeem those who would travel this path. Psalm 1 introduces us to this, and then Psalm 2 introdu introduces us specifically uh, to the Messianic theme of the Psalter. So let's begin to read Psalm chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in a seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Life can be complicated. There are many 
complicated issues that we face as we go about our days. And the Bible acknowledges this reality, uh, that, the, that there are many complex issues. Even within the Psalms, we see many complex emotions being raised. Uh, we see in the scriptures men like Habakkuk, men like Job, wrestling with bad things that are happening, wrestling with difficult, complicated matters. And yet the scriptures also at times, greatly simplify matters for us. It's not simplistic, but it does simplify some things for us. And this is important and helpful for us to know and to be reminded of. And one of the ways it does this is that the Bible regularly teaches us that there are ultimately two types of people in this world. For all the complexity of human beings for all the complexity of human experience, we ultimately fall into one of two categories. And the Bible has various terms to describe these two categories, these two types of people. Just consider a few of these. There are those who are in Adam, and there are those who are in Christ. There are those who are unregenerate, and there are those who are regenerate. There are non-Christians and Christians. There are those who enter by the broad gate and walk the broad path, there are those who enter the narrow gate and walk the narrow path. There are children of Satan, there are children of God. There are the wicked, there are the righteous. There is the way that leads to death, there is the way that leads to life. There is the fool, there is the wise, there is the proud, there is the humble, there is the goats, and there are the sheep. And I'm sure there's many more examples of this. But Psalm 1, once again, establishes this, teaches us this reality, that there are two paths, two types of people, ultimately. And one is the path of the blessed, righteous person whose end is life. And then there is the other path, the wicked, the sinner, whose way is death. The psalm contrasts these two different paths. And in this psalm, wisdom calls to us and bids us to spurn the path that leads to death and to walk the path that leads to life. It is reminiscent of what we find in the early chapters of Proverbs, as Solomon there, uh, somewhat ironically, given the way Solomon's life progressed, about where Solomon, early in the, song, in the Proverbs, uh, pleads with his son to walk in the way of wisdom. There's two ways to walk, and he's pleading with his son, walk in the way that is wise. And so this psalm here is similar, it's often called a, a wisdom psalm, that's the category often applied to it. And it begins by saying, blessed is the man, blessed is the man. There are a couple of Hebrew words that are translated blessed or blessed. Uh, this one here, used here, has the sense of happiness or contentment, joy, James Montgomery Boyce says, Blessedness means supremely happy or fulfilled. The word here is actually given in the plural, uh, indicates the amount of it. Uh, much blessedness. Oh, the happiness, oh, the joy, oh, the contentedness, oh, the fulfillment of the man. That's what this is saying. And then the psalm goes on to describe the character of such a person. Uh, but notice further that this blessed one is also righteous, is also considered righteous in this psalm. In verses 5 and 6 there at the end, uh, the blessed man is clearly considered righteous, counted among the righteous. And this raises the question right off the start here, as we have this blessed, righteous man in Psalm 1, this raises the question of how it is that one is declared righteous before God. Uh, is it by doing the things that are found in this psalm? Is it saying that if you do all of these things, then you will be accounted righteous at the end, and you will be right before God, you'll be able to enter heaven, uh, conditioned upon your performance in all of these matters? Is that what this is teaching? Of course, the answer to this is no. That's not what this is saying. Uh, throughout the Bible, the one who is justified, the one who is righteous, declared righteous before God, is the one who trusts in him. This was true and made explicit uh, in the life of Abraham, and Paul picks up on this in Galatians and in Romans and makes clear 
that it has always been the case that man or woman is declared righteous before God by faith. Remember of Abraham, it was said he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In the Old Testament, those Old Testament saints were believing the revelation that God had given to them at the time. And they were believing specifically that he would send the Messiah, the seed of the offspring of Abraham, to bring about a redemption, to reverse the curse that had come upon man after the fall. And in the New Testament, we of course know that this was Jesus Christ who came, and his death and resurrection is the way in which he is... uh, reversing the curse, the way in which he would save mankind, sons of Adam, all who believe in him. So the Old Testament saints looked ahead to this, and they were believing God's promise to bring this about. And we, of course, look back, we see that Christ has come, and in the New Testament age, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. All the same, Old Testament, New Testament, you're justified, declared righteous before God by faith. And the one who is declared righteous by faith is now, in this lifetime, being sanctified. Gradually, progressively, being made more righteous in our thoughts, in our actions, in our attitudes, in every way. Another way we might say this is that the one who is declared righteous by faith is the one who goes on to walk in this blessed path that is outlined in Psalm 1. It is similar with the Beatitudes. You think of Jesus in Matthew 5. You saw it also in Luke. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers and so on. It's describing the character of those who trust in the Lord. And that's what's happening here in Psalm 1. It is those who trust the Lord that are on the path of life. It is those with a true saving faith, as James would put it. A true faith that displays such fruits as these. So in verse 1, the blessed man uh, is known first by whom and by what he disassociates with. Uh, So it's interesting that the psalmist begins with a negative in describing this person. Here's what this person does not do. This is interesting in many ways, but one of them is because so many people today and so many professing Christians today are loath to to identify themselves with what they're against, right? You hear a phrase commonly that sounds very pious, that I don't want to be known by what I'm against. I want to be known by what I am for. And you think, wow, that sounds really great. Uh, but if you are going to be for something, it necessitates you are also against something. You are against the opposite. If you are for freedom, then you, by necessity, are going to be against enslavement. You will be against taking away freedom. If you're going to be pro-life, then you must also be anti-abortion. This is just the way it is. And so if you, if people want to say, I'm just for these things. It's, it's, it, you have to be against. And if not, it's confusing. Such people maybe shouldn't even be trusted. What are they really saying? Anyway, the psalmist begins here by pointing out the blessed man, the one who has the fruit here of belief, of faith, Uh, They are actually against certain things. First, such a person walks not in the counsel of the wicked. This is speaking about the advice of the wicked. Uh, This is not just talking about a a, a counsel, a group of people. It's saying this person does not heed the advice that wicked people would give. The righteous person on the path of life does not listen to this. Those who stand in opposition to God, those who delight in wrongdoing and unrighteousness, uh, the blessed man, the righteous person, is not heeding their advice, not living according to their ways. Second, he does not stand in the way of sinners. That is, you won't find this person standing in the roadway where sinners travel about their godless lives. And third, he doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. A scoffer... uh, According to Proverbs 21.24, it tells us this. Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. The Bible has much to say about the scoffer, uh, sometimes translated as scorner. Such a person is proud and haughty, as we just read. Such a person delights in scorning. The scoffer is incapable of discipline, of reproof 
or rebuke. That is, they will not receive these things. They're too good for this. They're arrogant. The scoffer cannot find real wisdom. Proverbs 24.9 says the scoffer is an abomination. Here we read in Psalm 1 that the scoffer is to be avoided. We're also told in Proverbs 19.29 that judgment is prepared for the scoffer. The blessed, righteous man or woman, we're told, is not occupying that chair. Does not sit in that seat. Is not a scoffer. It's debated at, when you see these three, these three things, walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the seat, way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. It's debated whether these three things should be taken as a progression. You know, a progression from oh, taking someone's advice to now occupying their chair and, and mocking the things of the Lord. Uh, I, I affirm that sin often does have a, a spiral to it. People begin often uh, with a bad thing, a sinful thing, and it, it spirals from there and goes from bad to worse. That's true. Uh, but I do th- just think that these statements are basically synonymous statements. Statements that are more or less saying the same thing, and that when we take them together, it just provides a full picture and a stark contrast between the way of the wicked and the way of uh, the righteous, the way that leads to death and the way of life. The point that's being made is that the righteous person avoids all of these things. They're not sitting in the position of arrogant mockery over the thing, about the things of God, uh, nor is such a person even listening to their advice and heeding it. Uh, the scripture teaches that when God saves a people for himself, he calls them to come out of the world and to be holy, to be separate, set apart for God and his purposes. This is not particularly fashionable in many churches today where it seems that we want to get as close to the world as we can, as close as we possibly can. We want to be kind of worldly so we might get some cred in the eyes of the world. But God says we are to come out of the world. We do not walk in those ways. We don't heed their advice. 1 Peter 1.14 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Later, Peter describes the church as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so the blessed, righteous man is one who trusts in the Lord and has come out of a life of sin and now belongs to the Lord and lives for the Lord. There is a godly separation from evil and from wickedness and from those who would live this lifestyle. There's a separation from the, the, the thinking of the world. Of course, this does not mean that we never interact with unbelievers, with those who are wicked, with those who are sinners. We still live in this world. We still work amongst sinners. We still meet these people. We interact with these people in various ways. We evangelize these people. We don't just come out and try to avoid them at every, you know, at all costs. But this does mean we be careful It does mean we need to be careful we're not heeding their advice, that we're not walking in their ways, and certainly that we're not joining them in their mocking of the things of God and in their scheming and plotting to do evil. The righteous man, says Psalm 1, is the one who disassociates with this evil. It is not the one who tries to get as close as possible to these things close to the fire, just trying not to get burned. It's a person who disassociates. But he goes on uh, to talk about some positive characteristics. You want to be known what you're for? Here you go. Verse 2. So he's disassociating with evil and wicked. Verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. 
This person is not following after the way of the wicked. He's put that off and now delights in the law of the Lord. Uh, Notice it's not just enough to just avoid certain really bad people, just change out a few friends, and then everything's good to go. No, the truly blessed person, the truly righteous person, delights in the law of the Lord. Law of the Lord is used different ways in the scriptures. Sometimes law can refer very narrowly to the Ten Commandments, uh, or all the commandments of God even. It can refer to the first five books uh, of of the Bible, the books of Moses, the law of Moses. And sometimes it is used as a shorthand to refer to the scriptures in general. And I think that's what its purpose is here. Certainly it would include God's commands, the Ten Commandments and others. But I think it's broader than that here. The blessed person delights in the word of the Lord. And this statement that such a person delights, takes joy in God's word, is important for a number of reasons. Uh, one of them is that this indicates and teaches us that the author is here speaking of those who have indeed received regeneration by the Spirit of God, those who have been born again, those who have been made new from within. And yes, the Old Testament saints did receive this work. Uh, There are some differences between the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the New. Uh, We're not going to get into all of that now. I'd be happy to discuss that another time. But but if you consider when Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, he chastises Nicodemus because he should understand that the new birth is essential and necessary. This Old Testament believer, he should understand this. This is what the circumcision of the heart is and, and always has been. Moreover, Romans 8, 7 teaches us, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So the one who has not been made new within by God's Spirit is unable to rejoice in the law of the Lord. And yet the blessed person here, the one who is righteous in Psalm 1, does in fact delight in the law of the Lord. And so the blessed righteous person has been made new within by God's Spirit and now actually delights in God's law. Again, Believing in the Lord, being saved, having true biblical faith. It's not just mental assent to something. There is actually a conversion that takes place. There is actually a change, a renovation in one's heart. And now what they once despised, could not submit to, what they once found to be folly, the law of the Lord, the scriptures, they now delight in this. And it says... And on his law, he meditates day and night. This person delights in these truths and is thinking about it and contemplating these truths by day and also by night. Going over the scriptures, reminding themselves of the scriptures. Understand that these scriptures are good, that what God says is true and good. Understanding that this is our lifeline, this is our authority, and therefore dwelling on it and thinking about it, meditating on it. The word has the idea of um, mumbling them. It's speaking them, going over them, muttering them to yourself. This is very different, obviously, from the wicked person who scoffs at God, who is arrogant and haughty, unteachable. It's very different from those who plot how and when they will sin, violating God's commands. The righteous person now comes under the authority of God's word. And while such a person is not seeking to keep the commands of God in order to be saved, they nevertheless now recognize that God's ways are in fact good and now to be cherished. So the blessed man is the one who disassociates with the wicked and now delights in the law of the Lord. And verse 3 continues, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Verse 3 describes 
the result of a person being righteous and who delights in the word of God is compared to a healthy tree that is planted by water that bears fruit whose leaves does not wither. The picture here is of a person whose life is well-rooted, not easily shaken. It's a picture of a person who is bearing the fruit of righteousness. And then he adds here, in all he does, he prospers. Now, that word prospers can also be translated as uh, success or is successful in all that he does. Sometimes this success can be physical, it's material, often so. Often God does prosper his people, prosper his saints. You think of Joseph, we're explicitly told that God blessed the work of his hands, even as others tried to assault him and put him down, God continually raised him up. That certainly happens. Um, but certainly, what is said here is true in a spiritual sense. That ultimately, a believer's labors for the Lord are not in vain. So Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. And consider for, for the believer, even when trial does come, and it does come, God says he employs those things for our growth in grace. And so we indeed do prosper. Now that, that passage we read earlier in Jeremiah 17, that's very comparable to this. Uh, it's likely these two are related. I, I'm not sure when Psalm 1 was initially written. Uh, some think it's written by David. That's possible. If so, then it predates Jeremiah uh, some think Psalm 1 may have been written as late as Ezra's time, in which case it would come after uh, Jeremiah would have written. Clearly, whoever's writing second is, is, seems to be aware of the other, and they're very similar, although there are some differences. But there in Jeremiah 17, again, this one who trusts in the Lord is, is compared to a tree planted by water. And there it says, they do not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. When trial comes, the heat of trial comes, the life of the believer, the believer does not wither. When a believer goes through a horrific trial, and you've known these people, and you've, some of you are these people, you've been through these days, you've been through these seasons. When a believer goes through a horrific trial, and some may conclude because of that trial they're accursed of God, and yet when a believer comes through the other side of that trial with their faith alive, their testimony intact, with praises still on their lips for God, with their humility increased, this is a remarkable prosperity. This is a remarkable success. When you see someone like that, there is a tree that is planted by streams of water. There is a life, a person that is well-rooted, that is not easily shattered or shaken. The psalm goes on, though, that the wicked are not so. If there is something that is the opposite of a well-rooted tree, uh, surely it is chaff. Uh, the light and airy waste from a grain that floats off in the slightest of breezes when, it is, when the grain is threshed. Elsewhere in the Bible, um, we see people, we see writers, scripture writers, wrestling with the fact that the wicked often appear in this life to be the ones who prosper. They seem to be the ones who do well. They would look at this psalm and they would say, I'm not entirely sure this is true. Often the wicked seem to have everything they desire, and it is the people of the Lord that seem struck down. And yet the scriptures also, including this very psalm, would have us expand our view, expand our horizons, to look beyond this life now, to see that the day of the Lord will disclose the man of straw as surely as it will disclose the works of straw, as one commentator put it. Ultimately, the wicked are living their lives with zero foundation and zero security. At a moment, everything can be taken from them and they could be standing before the Lord. 
They have no root in point of fact. Even when they look like they've got it all together and they think they've got everything they want. They are nevertheless like chaff. And I would implore you to remember this. If you are tempted to ever be jealous of the wicked or to want what they have. Asaph in Psalm 73, I encourage you to read that psalm. He says there that he almost stumbled when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. He considered how they seemed to have everything. He almost stumbled in jealousy of them until, he says, he was able in the house of the Lord to discern their end. He was able to look past the 80 plus, less, give or take, years of this life. And so it is here then, also, as we come to verse 5, as we're considering these two ways that are being contrasted and compares, compared in verse 5, Five and six, we now see the parting of the ways. Look at verse five. Therefore, the wicked, these chaff like people, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. When we lift our eyes to the end of all things, when the judgment comes, this is especially where we see this difference between the well-rooted tree, the one who's trusting in the Lord, and the wicked, the chaff. The wicked, it says, will not stand. They will not be able to withstand. They will not be able to survive the judgment. Uh, that definite article there in verse 5, the judgment, that's important it tells us this is not referring to some temporal, earthly judgment like a particular calamity that might come upon these people. It is speaking of the final eschatological judgment. The Old Testament is not as clear about the details of what that day looks like, but the concept of a final reckoning with God is absolutely found throughout the Bible. Jesus himself says that the resurrection is found. The teaching of the final resurrection of the dead unto life for some and unto death for others is found in the Old Testament. Daniel makes it crystal clear as well and other places also. And again, just the, the justice of God requires that we look beyond this life only. Of course, the New Testament clarifies matters even more. And the reality is, those who travel the path of sin, who walk the way of wickedness, they will not stand in that day. They will not be found on that day in the congregation of the righteous, of the redeemed of God throughout history and throughout time. Rather, it says here, they will perish. It brings to mind John 3.16, does it not? That word perish. This judgment for sinners reminds us of the holiness and the perfection of God. God is not one who winks at sin, who acts as if certain sins are not a big deal. This is not the God of the Bible. He is altogether holy. He is altogether pure. He is altogether righteous. And he tells us that sin is transgression of his laws. And this includes the big sins like murder, but it also includes things like disobeying our parents. It includes things like stealing. It includes hatred of other people. Sin includes lusting after others, not just the physical act of adultery. And it is no light matter to walk in these sins. People are so dismissive of God's ways, so dismissive of His commands. But this is of eternal significance. The way of the wicked will perish, it says. Hell awaits unrepentant sinners. In contrast, the psalm mentions the congregation of the righteous. It mentions the way of the righteous. 
Again, those who are redeemed by God through faith. This group will be gathered by God in the end, given resurrected bodies, and will dwell forever with the Lord. And it is these people here, it says, who are known by God. This word known uh, is an intimate knowledge. That's what this means. He isn't just, he's not just aware of. He is intimately equated. He knows his own sheep. Paul told Timothy, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. There is a great comfort here for believers that God, if you're trusting in Christ, he knows you. He's intimately acquainted with you. This implies likewise that he cares for you. He knows you. And yet this is also here given as a warning, I think, for the wicked. It's saying the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. He does not know the way of the wicked in the same way. He does not love the wicked in the same way as he loves his own sheep, those who believe in him, those whom he has redeemed. And so when the end comes, there is a distinct separation, divide between these two groups. The sheep known by the Lord, they're congregated together in the new heavens and new earth, forever to be with God, and yet the goats, the wicked, are removed, and they are judged by God in hell. There are so many, if we think of this psalm, there are so many different points of application from it. But let me just start with this. And at first, we should heed what this says here about the wicked. We should stop and think about this and examine ourselves with regard to the path that we walk. Luther said this. He said, when Scripture speaks of the ungodly, take heed that thou thinkest not, as the ungodly always do, as if it referred to Jews and heathens or perhaps also to others, but present thyself also before the word. What he's saying there is don't too, we should not too quickly, when we read of ungodly or the wicked, just assume, oh yeah, that's speaking of other people, the really, really bad types of people. Rather, let God's word come over us. Let us test our own hearts in light of what God says with regard to sinners. A Christian is not just one who claims to be so parable of the soils bears that out. The scriptures bear that out. There are those who profess faith in Christ, but whose faith, as James says, is a dead faith. A true Christian is one who has been made new from within, has been born again. Jesus uses the tree analogy as well to say that a wicked tree cannot bear good fruit. Uh, The tree has to be changed. The root of the tree, the heart of man, a woman, has to be changed. So I would ask you, Do you recognize the goodness of God's word? Do you see and believe the excellencies of the way of life that is described here? Does it bring you joy to walk that path? Do you delight in God's word? Church is not a game we play. We don't just gather here to just feel good. We, don't just, we can't just bribe God. We cannot fool God. Again, even in Jeremiah 17, God knows the heart. He's examining the heart. You, we can fool one another. You cannot fool Him. And I would plead with you to, to consider your own heart in light of God's Word. And as you do that, again, It's not so that you might just feel terrible. It's that you might be assured of your position before God. That if you find yourself to be outside, that you've never had a delight in God's word. You just tag along because mom and dad bring you. Or you just kind of show up because your spouse maybe wants you to. or Whatever it might be. That you would realize that. That you would be exposed. That you would be honest before God. And that you would flee to Christ for forgiveness of your sins. And so as you think about these things, maybe, maybe you've, you've, that's you. You've, you fall short. Maybe you've never had a change of heart. You've never really delighted in the things of the Lord. It's always seemed kind of a, just a chore. 
You've never really departed evil. You've given up a few things, but you've never really thought bad is all that bad. You've never really fully agreed, maybe even, with what God says is good and evil. Or maybe, maybe you do believe. Maybe you know that this is right. Maybe you know that this is true, that Psalm 1 is wonderful, that what this says is absolutely right. It's right to delight in God's law. You've believed. You can look back. You can see that there's been progression in your life, fruitfulness as you profess faith in Christ. You know your hope is in Him. And yet, you still see as you compare yourself to God's laws, you compare yourself to God's standard, you still see a mixture in your heart. As you examine yourself, you find that the flesh is still strong. You find desires for sin. They still rise up in you. You you, you know you don't have, always have a zeal for the word of the Lord that you know you ought to have. Perhaps you are more easily tossed about when trials come. You don't always feel like a well-rooted tree. Here is where we need to know, where we need to remember that there has only ever been one truly, inherently righteous, blessed man. Only one who perfectly resisted the path and the counsel of sinners. Only one who perfectly delighted in the law of the Lord and fulfilled every single command before him. Never violating one, only one who never wavered or faltered, but bore perfect fruit of righteousness at all times. Only one man who perfectly succeeded and prospered in literally every single thing he did. It is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the eternal Son of God who took to himself a human flesh. He is the truest and perfect embodiment of the blessed man of Psalm 1. And he came to perform this work. He came to obey God's law, not for his own sake, but for his people. He came to do it for all who would repent of their sin and look to him in faith. He has earned a perfect righteousness in his life of obedience to God and his law that he now gives to all who place their faith in Christ. As we sang earlier, it's his robes for mine. Jesus then also takes our sin for believing in Christ And on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins. He takes our filthy robes, pays for them. We receive his perfect robe of pure righteousness, credited to our account by faith. So if you have walked the path of the wicked, and maybe you've never, ever really believed, the Bible says to repent of this, to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. And that your sins will be forgiven. And God will change your heart and set you on this path to life. And if you do believe, then when you see or you experience that tug of war within you, in your heart between sin and righteousness, when you come before the law of the Lord and you see again your own failure in it, I would encourage you to continue that battle, but also to do one to to battle as a child of God by faith, to remember the perfect man who has obeyed on your behalf and to make that your boast, to make that your rest, to rest in the work of Christ and then battle your sin as one who is forgiven by God, as one who is his child, not because you have perfectly obeyed, but because Christ has on your behalf. This changes the way we can pursue Righteousness. This changes the way we battle and put off our sin. Root your joy in the work of the Lord Jesus. He is your saving righteousness alone. And maybe today you just need a reminder. A reminder from this psalm of what is truly good. Of what is truly fulfilling. Of where true happiness lies. The world, the devil... Your own sinful and deceptive heart, your flesh, these evil forces team up against us, often telling you 
that God's word and his ways are restrictive. Often telling you God's ways are no fun. Often telling you that God's ways are in fact oppressive, that God is not out for your good. But this is simply not true. This is a lie that we need to take captive and make obedient to Christ. Bring under the authority of Scripture and find again here that it is the the blessed man is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but who delights in the law of the Lord, which is good, and meditates on it. If you're a believer, you know this is true. You've experienced that lie that some sin is going to bring you fulfillment. It's what you should do to to not go down that path would not be very fun or good, and yet you go down that path, you sin, and it leads you into misery. And even where sin may, may bring you some sense, although it's wrong, some sense of satisfaction to you, it pales in comparison to the joy of walking with God and having a clear conscience before the Almighty. So be reminded that it is the law of the Lord that is truly worthy of your delight, your affections. Stoke those affections by spending time in the Word, by praying for greater delight in it, guarding against those things that would dull your love for God's ways. Renew your mind here in Psalm 1. And so in this Psalm, we have a a great description of the perfect Lord Jesus in whom we are to place all of our hope. And also this psalm calls us then, bids us to spurn the path that leads to death and to follow the Lord and to walk in this path of life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ, the righteous one, in whom is all of our hope all of our hope of salvation, in whom is all of our justifying righteousness. God, thank you that your way is good. We praise you. We declare, worship you, because your law is good. God, cause us to be those who see through the lies of this wicked world and who truly delight in your word. Make us those who love your commands, who love everything your word has to say. Make us those who, when your word says something that doesn't initially sit well with us, that we would be those who nevertheless submit to you, that we would not lean on our own understanding. Pray that you would produce much fruit in us, that you would cause us to be well-rooted, that you would cause our faith to endure whatever trials might come. Father, may every single person here, young and old, be part of the congregation of the righteous. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.